Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So here's a joke. What's brown and sticky? I don't know. A stick. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from writer Ben Schott. That'll help break the ice. We'll talk to him in a minute about his new book, which is slightly more sophisticated than that joke. Not hard. Not hard. <laughs> Plus, we'll speak with actor Tony Collette. She stars in the TV show Hostages and is in the recent Nicole Holof Center film Enough Said. Also coming up, singer-songwriter Bill Callahan shares his dinner party soundtrack, and humor columnist Celia Rivenbark stands proudly for ketchup. Plus, comic artist Joe Sacco, and for dessert, we go Dutch. Because it's only fair. Tis. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. And joining us today is perhaps the king of small talk, Ben Schott. He is author of the best-selling trivia compendiums, Schott's Miscellany and Schott's Almanac. Basically, if you memorize either of these books, you will have something to say at any party. Indeed. His new book is called Schottenfreude. It's a dictionary of German words, including newly created ones, that describe actions and feelings for which there are no other means of expression. Hi, Ben. Guten Tag. <laughs> nice. Uh, wie geht's? Uh, yeah, yeah, not so bad. Thank you very much. <laughs> you guys, I took French. <laughs> Ça va? Well, that's a, good, that's a good point, Rico. Besides the pun that gives your book this amazing title, Schattenfreude, why is this a book of German words and not French words or some other language? It's interesting. Because we turn to German in moments of perplexity. We turn to it for things like angst, and we turn to it for things like zeitgeist. It's for these dark, strange emotions. Somehow German is so much better. It's the language of Freud. It's the language of Nietzsche. It's the language of Angela Merkel. I mean, this is like serious, dark stuff. And yeah. But why, what is it about German that allows that? Is it just that they have lots of words that get pasted together easily? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, German is one of the few compound languages, maybe the only compound language, where you can literally shoehorn words together and create these long compounds. The second is that there's something about German, there's something about that kind of middle European depth that gives us this strange sensation. It's the language of psychoanalysis. Somehow it seems to tap into something deep and dark. And of course, let's not forget, there are umlauts. <laughs> well, let, let's look at one of the words to explore this. So okay. forgive me, I am going to be mispronouncing this. Speichelgleichmut. Speichelgleichmut. This is when one pretends they haven't been accidentally spit on during conversation. Yeah. This word is derived from what word? The literal translation is saliva stoicism. So the book has these made-up German words, which are real German words. I mean, they're made up in the sense that they're neologisms, but they're proper German. A German would say, well, this is strange, but I know what you're saying. Mm. Uh, so yeah. uh, Speichelgleichmut, saliva stoicism, sums up pretending you haven't been accidentally spat on. And there, there is a footnote attached to this word, as there are to many words in your book. Give us that background. That's right. Pretending you haven't been spat on in conversation has a deep historic roots. And actually, one of the footnotes for this goes back to 1661, where the great famous London diarist Samuel Pepys was at a theater and he was spat on accidentally while talking to a very attractive woman. But she was so attractive <laughs> that he carried on and pretended it hadn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> See, if he'd had your book, he would have been able to, you know, describe that to others much more easily. Absolutely. He could have said, ah, a classic case of Speichelgleichmut, <laughs> thereby spitting on her. But don't you think he, he's British? You guys wouldn't say anything anyway if someone Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All we say is sorry. The trick is to apologize <laughs> all the time for everything. All right. So, Ben, let's get to the main event here. 
All week long, we have been hearing these headlines. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie cruised to a crushing victory over his Democratic challenger. Sad news, the death of Charlie Trotter, one of the most prominent chefs in Chicago. Twitter becomes a public company. Now for the small talk, you tell us something we haven't heard. What story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, it's a very small story, but as the holidays come up, people start sending gifts to their loved ones and the ones that they don't love, but they have to send gifts to all around the world. <laughs> and there was a very small piece, uh, a UPS worker uh, was in interviewed uh, basically how to avoid your packages being destroyed and how to make sure they get there on time. And uh, there were three very useful tips. First of all, counterintuitively, don't write fragile. Hmm. If you write fragile on your package, apparently, it irks the people because they're like, really? We don't treat everything well? So you're much more likely to get it thrown down the chute. Yeah, they get offended and they abuse it. Exactly. The second is don't right. reuse labels because they get confused. And the third, which I really like, is if you really think it's fragile and you want special care taken, get a child to write the address. Whoa. Oh. Apparently, something about the human touch, there's something about crayons that melts even <laughs> the most vicious and hard-hearted postal sorter, and they take good care of it. Wow. So either get a child or just, like, misspell stuff and write letters backwards and things. That might make you look like a bit of a security terrorist threat. I think you need to, you know, if you start Red Room on it, I think people are going to get upset. I'm just saying. Ben Shad, thanks for the small talk. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a steam train powered by hot coals on which we throw booze. Okay. Complicated. A little. All right. First, the history. This week, back in 1883, Charles Bowles wrote his last poem. But you probably didn't study his work in English class. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Charles Bowles was known for two things, rhymes and robberies. It all began in 1871. Bowles had a silver mine in Montana until Wells Fargo Bank decided they wanted the land and cut off his water supply. Bowles walked away, but swore revenge. And he got some, all right. For eight years, Bowles robbed dozens of Wells Fargo stagecoaches using a pseudonym he swiped from a dime store novel, Black Bart. Bart wasn't like other highwaymen. He was polite. He had a gun, but he never fired a shot. And then he started leaving messages at the scenes of his crimes in verse. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of the poems made Black Bart a folk hero, even after he was caught in November 1883 and swore he'd never rob again. In fact, when he was released, reporters immediately asked if he'd write more poetry, to which he replied, Now, didn't you hear me say that I am through with crime? So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Greg Lindgren. He is the co-owner of Rye Bar in San Francisco, where Black Bart spent some time and was finally arrested. Greg, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? We're calling this cocktail the annuity. <laughs> because? I did some research on my own, read about a rumor that Black Bart was actually paid by Wells Fargo to stop robbing their stagecoaches, and I thought that was uh, <laughs> pretty cool. So after he got out of jail, they, uh, they made him a deal? So it says. I wish they would make me that deal. Me too. <laughs> cool. So, so what's in the drink? The cocktail that we came up with is a spin on a, on a brandy sour okay. made with one and a half ounces of Germain Roban brandy. 
Uh, that's oh. from right here in Ukiah, California. Which is, that's Gold Rush country, if I'm correct. That is correct. All right. And we use lemon juice, uh, three quarters of an ounce, uh-huh. and the white of one egg, and then sweeten it up a little bit with half an ounce of honey syrup. Wow, that sounds fantastic. I was thinking if you're going to do something with Wells Fargo, you might just do overdraft beer. <laughs> So, Brendan, I've got a theory. Okay. It's this. Bart didn't rob to get revenge on Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. He just needed cash to pay off the student loans for his English writing degree. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That's right. Those Sally Mae bills just pushed him over the top. It's too much. I can relate. Folks, you don't have to steal our cocktail recipes. They are free for you at dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, mixed a drink, but no party has started unless there is some music playing. For that, we turn to Texas-based musician Bill Callahan. In the 90s, he recorded low-fidelity indie rock under the name Smog, but now he's known for the poetry of his lyrics, his evocative country-tinged tunes, and rich baritone voice. Mm. Here he is to suggest songs by other musicians. Hi, I'm Bill Callahan. I have a new record called Dream River. And here are some of the songs I would play if I was hosting a dinner party. Well, the first thing that came to my mind, Jimmy Webb and his song Campo de Encino, that's on the Letters record. I want to live on the valley side Where the girls are skinny and the sky is white Even though he's also a really good singer, there's something about his voice, he could be like, sitting next to you at the dinner party. Dinner parties always remind me of the 70s for some reason. I don't know if it's because that's when my parents were having them. So music from the 70s seems to be the most, like, apropos. There's a lot about food in there. He talks about wanting to be a vegetarian and eat an artichoke once in a while. I was a vegetarian for 18 years, and I, I quit about two years ago, and it's still a wonderful novelty to eat meat. I still get excited about it. The next thing I thought of was Burt Bacharach, and I just thought of that song, Something Big. Why did I go on and fill my life with little things when there are big things I must do? He's one of the best lyricists around and makes these great stories and characters. His music is very light and very heavy at the same time, so the arrangements are often very dooby-doo. So you can listen to it on that level, it's very pleasant, almost like elevator music. If you play that song, it'll be in everyone's head for the rest of the night, too. And so that like, brings people together. If everyone has the same song torturing them, then it's kind of like a unifying thing at a party. The third song is by Lonnie Holly, and it's called All To Be Rendered. I'm actually on tour with him right now. He's opening for us. Looking for all to be rendered Looking for all to come about from my soul. Lonnie is in his 60s. He started out as a visual artist using stone and found objects. 
He has some stuff in the Smithsonian, and he just started recording music only a few years ago. But I'm sure he's been singing all his life. It's just keys and vocals. Just a penetrating, unforgettable voice. It probably shut the dinner party up because everyone would stop talking and just listen. From deep inside of my internal self. I regretted picking him as an opener once that dawned on me, like a hard act to follow. But, you know, it's still good. <laughs> If I had to play a song from my new record at a dinner party, I would probably play Spring. And I would probably go into another room while everyone listened to it and come back when it was over. My wide world collide. And my wide world. A dinner party soundtrack from Bill Callahan. He's on tour now in support of his new album, Dream River, on Drag City Records. It's beautiful, but I I do hope Bill really returns to the party after the song is over. (laughs) Right? I I just totally pictured him driving away into the night while his guests are surrounded by dishes. Where's Bill? Alone. All right, folks, we're going to take a break, but coming up, etiquette tips from one of the funniest ladies south of the Mason-Dixon line. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, comedian and Twitter phenomenon Rob Delaney tells us a tale of teen rebellion, heavy metal, and birthday cake. Mm. And then we'll head to Amsterdam to dine on balls of oil. At last. But first, it's time to learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them today is humor columnist and purveyor of Southern sass, Celia Rivenbark. She's been nominated multiple times for the James Thurber Prize for Humor and bears open grudges against David Sedaris and Jon Stewart, who have edged her out. Her last book, You Don't Sweat Much for a Fat Girl, was a New York Times bestseller. Her new book just came out. It's got a title that's not quite radio-friendly, so we'll just call it Rude Female Dogs Make Me Tired. And it is a collection of... <laughs> you could you could have used the bleep there, Rico. You want it? Okay. What? Rude Make me tired. <laughs> okay, there you go. And it is a collection of etiquette advice, of course. Celia, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. So in your foreword, you ask a very dangerous question for someone who's, you know, writing an etiquette book. Do we really need another etiquette book? <laughs> I know, yeah. that was pretty brave. <laughs> yeah. Brave and stupid to ask that question. <laughs> so why did you write it? Well, I did it because, you know, this is so not your mama and your grandmama's etiquette book. This is not about holding the pinky high when you're drinking the hot tea. This is not about which one is the fish fork. This is about how to deal with the bossy witch at the playground uh, witch that's a good one yeah there you go okay. why didn't you call it rude witches make me tired <laughs> just doesn't have the same punch you know okay so uh, you you tackle a lot of etiquette dilemmas in this book which one gets you get your goat the most the thing that r- you're really happy to have a chance to set people straight about 
I would say the texting at the dinner table. Um, that drives me out of mm. my mind, right out of my gourd. You know, I've been to dinner parties and everybody's texting in their laps like little tiny children. And it drives me crazy. And I look at them and I yeah. say, you know what? Unless that you're waiting for a text from the transplant team and you're waiting <laughs> on a new liver, you need to put that thing away. So how do you deal with the texter at the dinner table? If I'm hosting a little party and somebody, I will just look at them in the eye and I will say, I'm sorry, is our witty band? disturbing your phone call. You know. well, what I do is I do private shaming. I text them. <laughs> Get off the Ooh. phone. We're watch- or uh, like a, a picture of them texting and I just send it to them. But what would be funny is if somebody then was like texting you a thing saying, Get off your phone right now, Brian. Right. It's just like a round <laughs> exactly. robin of text angst. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let's get to some of our etiquette questions from our listeners. They have some good ones for you, I think. This is from Andrea in Barnesville, Ohio. And she writes, are you allowed to bring ketchup to a restaurant if the restaurant doesn't provide it? The place in question serves fancy burgers and ketchup is specifically not on the premises. What? Is this in America? (laughs) I've heard about this place, actually. We're not going to name names, but yes. Oh, okay. You know. Okay, first of all, fancy burgers is hilarious. I mean, isn't that kind of an oxymoron? <laughs> you eat burgers with your hands, oh, the grease is dripping down just like God intended. A burger yeah. place acting kind of uppity just seems weird to me. So, yeah, yeah, what the hey, take a couple of packets. I think it's, I would go one step further. It is your responsibility to bring ketchup to that restaurant, Andrew. Oh, I love the way you think. You know, I, mean, I think you should bring it discreetly, a little packet, not a great big pack. You know, you don't want to bring the 64-ounce thing right straight from your fridge and it's got the sweat beading on it. You don't want that. <laughs> Thump on, would, on the table. That, right, right. I brought my own thing. Check it but out. What would be funny is that everybody in the daggum restaurant would look at you with great envy and they'd say, hey, can I borrow that, dude? Be like that. Maybe you could charge them, make some extra exactly. money. <laughs> I asked for A1 one time at Ruth's Chris, not to name names. And, and honestly and truly, he brought it to me in a little silver bowl <laughs> after about 10 minutes and he handled it like it was a cow pie. It was ridiculous. Here, take it, get it out. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So we have a question. Uh, This one comes from Jack in Santa Monica. Jack asks, should I warn my guests that I recently saw a mouse in my kitchen? It's been gone for a few days, but I don't know where it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Of course you should. And you sh- and uh, Jack, really? was it uh, Jack, you should also be sure and tell everybody about any extramarital affairs you're having <laughs> or how your toe fungus <laughs> is progressing because while you're sharing, don't leave anything out. That is the stupidest yeah. thing I've ever heard in my life. No, of course you don't tell them. Of course you do not tell them because the the heart of good etiquette if you're hosting, you don't want to make your guest uncomfortable. Oh, that's true. But what it's if crazy. the right. so and if the mouse shows up, you're like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Well, exactly. You play it off. Yeah. You play it Quite off right. like, oh my goodness. First time ever. Oh so. yeah. I had a little dinner party oh a while back and I heard an awful sound and I knew what it was just as I was opening the door for the first guest and it was my husband and he was using his shoe, his size thirteen shoe, to kill a water bug the size of Kansas. I mean, we call them water bug, it's cockroaches, but in yeah. the South we don't like that word. No. So it was a water bug. But, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, my God, that noise. That's him killing water bugs in the kitchen. Come on in. We're having souffle. No. What did you say it was? I just said, oh, he's hammering something. (laughs) Yeah, you just ignore it. Like, did you bring your own ketchup? Welcome. (laughs) All right, Jack, there's your answer. Here is something from Elizabeth. She wrote via our website. We don't know where she's from. She says, I am a new mom and visitors are stopping by unannounced. Sometimes my new baby is screaming and the house is a wreck and I haven't showered and it's just a really bad time to even think of saying hi. Is it okay to ignore the doorbell 
Or if I do answer, how can I politely turn them away? Okay, here's the thing. I mean, I have been in her situation. I think that you should answer the door every single time. Because the truth is, unless you're dealing with complete jerks, they're going to be bringing you something. They're going to be toting a casserole or a big salad. <laughs> like my good friend, when my baby was born, my good friend rang my doorbell. My hair was gross. I don't think I was wearing a sweatshirt and no pants. But she was carrying a 16-layer chocolate cake. You don't think I opened that door wow. wide? I didn't care. Okay? So if they're going to show up, chances are they're... And, oh, the other thing they can do is give them the kid, especially if it's screaming. Yeah. Give them the baby and say, I need a shower. And you should say, I'll be back in two to three hours. I think you need to look at everybody in terms of what they can do for you. You know, when, you, when you've just had a baby. Because it's... It's a big deal. All right. There you go, Elizabeth. You're Not only did you get an answer to your question, but a solution to your babysitting Indeed. problems. <laughs> Celia Rivenbark, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. What fun. Best-selling author and humor columnist Celia Rivenbark. Yes. If her new book was called Rude Witches Make Me Tired, it would have made her jobs a lot easier. And folks, if someone's behavior is making you tired and you don't know what to do about it, tell us about your etiquette dilemma and we will have someone great address the issue. Maybe even David Sedaris. Maybe. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org <laughs> and click contact. And now, time to eavesdrop. At last year's Comedy Awards, stand-up comic Rob Delaney earned the title Funniest Person on Twitter. One million followers wouldn't disagree. Today we overhear him reading from his new memoir. We'll let him tell you the title. Well, I'm Rob Delaney, and I've written a book called Rob Delaney, Mother, Wife, Sister, Human, Warrior, Falcon, Yardstick, Turban, Cabbage. And uh, it is a memoir. And I am going to read a chapter from it now called Le Narcissisme, and uh, it is about regret. When I was 12, I loved the band Danzig. I still do. I literally, no joke, had a dream last night that Glenn Danzig visited me in a childhood friend's attic and showed me his new tattoos. I know it was a dream because these tattoos were awful, and Danzig's real tattoos are 100% killer. But did I tell him they were awful in my dream? No, I did not. Out of respect. I loved Danzig so much that when I realized he parted his hair on the right, I switched the part in my hair from the left to the right. This was 22 years ago. Still at age 12, I wrote him a letter detailing just how much I liked him since I thought he would for sure want to know. A few weeks later, I came upon a letter with the name Danzig stamped in the upper left corner. I carefully unsealed it to reveal a letter from Erie Vaughn, Danzig's bass player. The letter's tone was kind and warm and endeared Mr. Vaughn to me for life. He explained that Glenn couldn't possibly answer all his mail, so Erie lent a hand sometimes. Just in case Erie Vaughn's first letter didn't cement Danzig's position as the world's greatest band forever, he wrote me another one unsolicited, saying, essentially, How's it going, man? Everything groovy? Still rocking to Danzig? Indeed I was. What a gentleman. At that age, my mother and I spent a lot of time together, and she paid attention to my adolescent passions, even deigning to listen to the odd Danzig ballad, conceding that it was, yeah, nice, sure. So for my 13th birthday, she made me a Danzig birthday cake, 
It was magnificent and included all four members of Danzig's faces, which were easily identifiable. In my eyes, you'll see Although her only tool was a simple chocolate cake decorator in a tube over vanilla frosting, she was able to depict delicate shadows and convey the darkness of Danzig's majesty. It was a great cake. And when she presented it to me, I became infuriated. Mom, come on. Danzig shouldn't be on a cake. They're like bad dudes. Maybe they'd be like on a tombstone or a gunslinger's coat, but a cake? No way. Jeez. I want to cry thinking about the pain that was on her face. Here was a woman who worked full-time at an insurance agency to support her two kids, also making sure to be extremely present in our lives. She had worked on her masterpiece in secret, studying each band member's scowl to make her self-proclaimed badass little boy an extremely cool cake, and he hated it. And he let her know, like a real piece of Now that I'm a parent, the idea of my children expressing displeasure at my efforts to please them makes me want to lie down on a table saw. My mother simply smoothed off the guys' faces with a spatula and then covered the cake with chocolate sprinkles, or jimmies, as we called them then, but which I'm now told is a racist term. Later that night, my friends Rich and Matt slept over, our bellies full of the cake my mom had made and then remade when it failed to meet my satisfaction. To this day, when I imagine having a time machine, my first stop is my 13th birthday, where I would jump up and down with excitement and hug my mom when she reveals the cake. If there were still time left on my time travel visa, only then would I go back and kill Hitler. Cause you the one, you the one. Comedian Rob Delaney reading from his new memoir, Rob Delaney, Mother, Wife, Sister, Human, Warrior, Falcon, Yardstick, Cabbage. Man, I wanted to say that. <laughs> Too bad. And you are listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Do it one more time. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. And Brendan, you know I'm a huge fan of the Netherlands, the country. Yes, I've... Heard you say that once or a billion times. Indeed. And I do like to go this time of year because it is only bala season. Oh, and that's because this is the food segment. We know that's not Dutch for soccer. That's right. It means oil ball because that is exactly what it is. It is a ball of dough fried in oil. And Yum. street carts around the country start selling them around the holidays. So to learn about these things and to taste a very modern variation on one, I met with Eric Mersing. He is chef at De Culinaire Werkplatz in Amsterdam. I first asked where Olibala come from. Well, there are three different stories. Um, it's uh, also uh, very German, they believe, or uh, Portuguese. People just brought it here and we changed it a little. And they were called uh, Oli Cook instead of Oli Ball. So like oil, oil cookies. cookies. Oil, oil cookies. It had also a shape like a, a little ball. But I think we made a bigger ball out of it. That was the Dutch tweak on the German cookie, is just make it large? Yeah, make it large and um, put currants in it. Raisins. Raisins and currants, yeah. But uh, it looks airy, but it's very heavy. I mean, you can never eat about five oliboller. It's not good for your stomach. (laughs) They're like the size of a baseball, kind of. Yeah, you have uh, as as big as a fist sometimes. 
And when they're ready, you sprinkle them with powdered sugar. I describe them as the Dutch take on a donut, but without a hole. Yeah, it's something like donut, but I think it's more, more heavy than a, than a donut. If you can believe that. Yeah, I think so. So when did they come to the Netherlands, the Oliebal? Well, the first time uh, Oliebal appeared on a painting was in uh, 1652. It was a painting by Albert Kuyp. And he painted a woman with a basket full of Oliebollen. Basket full of them, so she was a very large woman. <laughs> I don't know. If she ate them all, she would be very much larger than uh, on the painting. <laughs> so we know we know from this painting that they existed in like 17th century. Right. That's what we conclude. And also, the typical filling is the currants and raisins. It's not. I know you can get them with other things, but the standard is raisins. Why is that? Uh, because um, we think it's a celebration bread, and in all the Dutch celebration breads are raisins. I see. So it's uh, because it's kind of holiday time, that's a uh, time to celebrate? It is It is holiday time, and um, you eat the olibola, especially on New Year's Eve. There's no New Year's Eve uh, without olibola. But your take on an olibola is different. What is? Uh, tell me how you prepare it. We make them smaller. There are no currants in them, and they are savorish. Savory? Uh, yeah, with uh, all kinds of spices in them. And we eat it with a little pesto, a walnut spinach pesto. Wow. It, it is, of course, a kind of bread, uh, olive oil. And you can eat bread uh, sweetish, but also savorish. So let's start uh, making the olive oil for you. Okay. okay. So there's the dough going into the frying oil. It is very deep in a wok slash saucepan, kind of. You see it rising, huh? So it gets bigger and bigger. That's delicious looking. So, and in this batter, what spices are you using? Uh, curry spices. So, Indian spices. Oh, so it's like an Indian non-bread, like N-A-A-N, olibala. It's like a non-donut. Yeah, you could say that. That's an original way of looking at it. A non-donut, <laughs> yeah. There you go. I'm doing Thanks. all of your PR for you. Thank you. You can market that, and I'll take 10%. You see, it's going to look like a little animal because uh, I didn't make a ball. <laughs> It's yeah. about to taste. <laughs> it didn't quite come out ball-shaped, you're right. It does look, I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> All right, so now the sadly misshapen olibal has now come out of the oil. It's ready. And this is what we serve tonight. It's a cocktail glass. And we use a cocktail glass because it's almost uh, like New Year's Eve. And underneath we have a little bit of uh, apple foam. So that's an apple foam at the yeah, bottom? an apple foam, yeah. In a kind of martini glass looking thing. And now, so on top of the apple foam is a little... A little bit of spinach. Baby spinach. Baby, baby spinach, yeah. And here is uh, a little bit of the pesto. All right, and now the twisted kind of golf ball sized olibala goes on top. So it's like a, a spinach pesto salad with an olibala on top. In a martini glass. Is this why? And you should um, imagine three balls like this. Oh, I see. So there'll be normally there would be three olibal yeah, on top three, of three the olibals like this. About uh, say an inch wide normally. Oh, sorry. We're in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, about four or five centimeters. Centimeters. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, all right. I'm going to try this so, thing. You have to dig deep uh, and get all the different uh, layers uh, on your fork. That is delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, this is served along with this. There's a kind of spritzer bottle, like a thin tube with a little aerosol sprayer on the top of it. What, what is this? Um, champagne, which goes with New Year's Eve, of course, and the Oli Bola. But um, it's better to spray it on your tongue. I mean, it's a 
different sensation. So this is a spray bottle full of champagne. It's a, uh, yeah. I'm going to spray a little bit of this on my tongue, see how it goes. <laughs> I think I also got it all over my cheeks. <laughs> so now I'm going to wander home and smell like a drunk, even though I had no alcohol at all. All right, so Brendan, the name of Eric's restaurant translates as the Culinary Workshop. All right. They consider themselves kind of food designers. And at one point, he showed me a photo of a wedding dress they made out of paper-like sheets of rhubarb. For real. <laughs> well, I guess if, if things don't work out, you can always compost your wedding dress. <laughs> That's true. Or make a pie. Yeah. It's nice. Folks, uh, we're going to make a pie. And when we get back, we speak with comic artist Joe Sacco and Tony Collette, star of TV's Hostages, when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, comic artist Joe Sacco tells us about his new book and the psychic toll it took on him. But first, we meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Tony Collette. Many remember her as Muriel, the ABBA-loving social outcast in the Australian indie hit Muriel's Wedding. She starred in countless other films, including Little Miss Sunshine and The Sixth Sense, for which she was nominated for an Oscar. She won an Emmy for her role in the TV show The United States of Tara, and now she stars in the CBS series Hostages. In it, she plays a top surgeon whose family is held hostage by a rogue FBI agent who wants her to assassinate the President of the United States. Dang. Yeah. In this clip, the agent gives her some poison to do the job. Roughly five minutes after the liquid is absorbed into the President's blood, you could expect to see a reaction. Just follow regular procedures. Nothing you do will save him. You'll never get away with this. You know that. Why are you doing this? All you have to focus on is why you're doing this. Don't think of it as killing the president. Think of it as saving your family. So this show you're working on is all about tension. It's a really tense show. Yeah. But like most TV shows, I'm sure it's filmed in bursts. You know, you're doing a scene here and a scene there. And so you have to act really intensely and then rest and then go back to acting. You know, like a scene where you're, you're putting your finger in your husband's renal artery. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, how? And then he had to use his own finger to hold it down. <laughs> That's right. How do you sustain that urgency on a set? You know, it's weird. I've been thinking about it because in order to not be completely snowed under by it, there must be kind of some kind of sense of removal, which in itself is a terrible thing because you don't want to become blasé about such a horrible situation either. Yeah. So I'm constantly having to remind myself of the seriousness of the situation. And I have to say, whenever I've worked on something that is this dark... I think somehow the crew and the cast balance it out by having a bloody brilliant time. So there, right. there is a lot of laughter and levity on the set. It's not yeah. like we're all, you know, moaning and groaning. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun day at work. But, yeah, there have been a couple of times where I'm like, oh, my God, okay, I just have to do I just have to. I have to dig a grave here. Yeah. You also, your character, Dr. Ellen Sanders, she's a great surgeon. She's been tapped to operate on the president of the United States. She's hyper-competent at her job. And I was thinking as, as an actor – do you feel the same relationship to your craft? At this stage in your career, do you feel like when I enter a role or enter enter a set, I know I know how to do this now? It's not the kind of 
a knowledge that I would shout out loud. I mean, there's what I love about my job is there's always a little bit of fear. Even like the night before when I'm looking at looking at a scene, it's I feel like I'm not going to get on top of it, and huh. and it's strange, but I I somehow know that I will. So it's the somehow, and that kind of little question mark that kind of somehow yeah. tells me. Do you feel like you need to create? You have to create that mentally that question mark. Is that how you get yourself psyched to play something? Is I might not pull this off, or no, I don't, I don't think that's <laughs> I don't think it's that clear. <laughs> yeah, in this show you play a mother. And you, you've played Mothers before, mm-hmm. United States of Terra, The Sixth Sense, lots of things. First of all, I, I read an interview where you said, I don't play a mother as much as I play a woman with kids. That's right. Tell me about that. Well, I think it's just so easy to say, oh, that's a mum role, you know, because yeah. there's a whole human being there who happens to have the most profound relationship with some people that she grew in her body and gave birth to. <laughs> yeah. And it just kind of me when people reduce a role to just being a mum. Yeah. So when I have played mothers, I try to breathe a whole life into them so that there's so much more going on than just uh, – it's not simple. Being a mother is not – it's not a simple it's thing. It's a complex – Complex and deeply profound relationship that you have. And presumably you're looking for roles where the characters are more complex than your maybe Absolutely. two-dimensional mothers of your. I don't like two-dimensional anything, so you're <laughs> right. <laughs> About being a mother, you interview actors and sometimes they'll learn guitar for a part, right? Or they'll, they'll learn archery for a role. You have two children of your own, but you've been playing mothers long before you had children. Was there any? Did you did something shift when I had them? Is that what you're getting? <laughs> no, at? <laughs> I was actually the other way around. Did you? Is there? Is it? Can actors learn something about being a human from their characters? Oh, absolutely, like always. Profound, that's things? that's pretty much why I love my job. It, mm. it it keeps me awake. It introduces me to different perspectives and the way other people think, which is always interesting. Yeah, and I. Th- I've I've been I've been thinking about it too, you know, because my kids are five and two now, and and to be honest, I can't articulate how they've changed how I approach my work. But I know before I had them, when I you know, wasn't a mother but played mothers, I guess mostly I I thought about being a daughter, you know, just mm. being on the other end of that relationship. Yeah. Um, and also I've had the luxury of working with great writing, and I think when that happens, it's really just a matter of empathising with your character. In thinking about your career, you've played so many Americans, it made me wonder whether or not you have fans that don't know you're Australian. Yep, there are. <laughs> and they're just just—they're surprised when you have an accent. They yeah. think you're just being Madonna acting strangely. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. No, they, yeah, they find it um, shocking. And they, they think it's me. And then when I talk, they go, oh, sorry, you know, you look like this person who did this. I say, yes, that actually is me. <laughs> no, it isn't. Then you get the, no, you're not you. And it's like, oh, I don't wow. know how to respond now. It's like an MC Escher sketch. Yeah. Does that make you feel good, though? Like success, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's the greatest compliment. <laughs> Speaking of international appeal, this show, Hostages, was originally an Israeli show. Yeah. uh, And this is happening a lot in TV lately. The Office was originally a British show. The Bridge was a Scandinavian show. We're people, people of the world. Are there any Australian shows that you watched growing up that you think are ripe for a remake? Sadly, to be honest, when I was growing up, and this is probably why I'm so good at doing the American accent, I watched a lot of American television. There was a very low content of domestic TV. What kind of American TV? Like Knight Rider? Night Rider was on. Ask Whoa. me anything, I'll say yes or no. Go. Baywatch. Yep. I didn't uh, watch that though. Dallas. Yeah, I didn't watch that though. Uh, what's happening? You didn't have that. I don't know what okay. that is. I'm talking the Brady Bunch. <laughs> All right, there we go. The Love Boat. All right. Um, Why isn't there a Love Boat now? I would love to be on the. Love it would boat. be cool. But I, I think you know, it'd be the hard theme to get song. All those I still feel I romanticize the theme song because I was very young when that was on. I think yeah. I was. 
three, four, five, something like that. The Love Boat used to be on. To me, it was very late. It was probably 8.30 at night mm-hmm. on Tuesday. I used to sneak into my aunt's house, which was a couple of doors down, and, oh, my God, watching that show in her bed and listening to... The Love Boat. It's right? a something great like theme song. Yeah. All right. Well, we have two standard questions on our show that we ask each of our <laughs> yes. guests. And the first question is, would you be in my remake of Love Boat? No. The, <laughs> the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? What's your, you've played all kinds of characters, so many different kinds of characters. What's your dream role? Because it just feels like the interviewer hasn't thought of a question or you don't have an answer to that. Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> Although now I'm starting to kind of think about creating um, mm-hmm. stories from the beginning, not just kind of coming on as an actor. So it is something I'm entertaining. But I really love just kind of trying to make myself open and available to whatever comes in. Generally, mm. something comes in that really resonates and it's exciting. And mm. I know, I'm excited that I haven't thought of it earlier and that it's. It, I like to be surprised. All right. So our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this could be something about you that you haven't talked about in interviews. Right. Or it could be an interesting piece of trivia. Oh, I've got something. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, When Muriel's Wedding did come out and I did a whole slew of publicity all around the world, one of the more exciting things that I was Mm. asked to do soon after the film came out was drive in a celebrity Grand Prix race. Whoa. Wait, how old are you at this point? 22. Okay. So I said yes and had two weeks of training and I drove so well that I was asked to drive professionally for the BMW team. Really? Wait, where was this taking place? In Europe? This somewhere? was in Australia. But it, it, I would have been joining a German woman in the BMW team. Uh-huh. And my agent wouldn't let me do it. So <laughs> she said it was too dangerous, what do, which why it is. Did you, why do you think you succeeded at the, like, are you, were you just a competitive person by nature or is there just... Um, I, I like to drive. Good student. You like to I'm drive? a good driver. Okay. My dad taught me to drive. And, yeah, I enjoyed it. So Grand Prix, they're the cars with the whale tail? Like, they're kind of like... No, we just had souped-up Holdens, actually. All right. But... And um, how fast are you going? Well, I don't know the translation, like, the conversion, um, but... Uh, we have a public radio audience. They'll do that. hairpin turns at 110 kilometers an hour. <laughs> and I think I was up to about 180, 190 on the straight. I don't oh know what that God. is in miles. This is great. I'm picturing your character, Muriel, doing this, too. Like, not you, the actor. (laughs) I'm just picturing her stuck into a car. It was madness, and it was fun. So, Rico, in case you didn't catch it, the car she was racing was a Holden, which is an Australian car manufacturer and a subsidiary of GM. Good to know. Also, by the way, that's about 115 miles an hour she took those turns on. Her life might have been a lot different had she chosen that path. That's right. It's not not really a path. It's kind of a circle. But I know you're saying. By the way, Tony also stars in the latest Nicole Hollow Center film, Enough Said, alongside Julia Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini. So she chose the right career. And now time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some fascinating topic. This week, the topic is World War I's Battle of the Somme, and our teacher is Joe Sacco. He is one of the most respected comic artists working today and also a respected reporter. His graphic treatments of real-life, often wartime events, include the landmark Palestine. He's won an Eisner Award, and his work has appeared in The Guardian and Harper's. His new work, The Great War, July 1, 1916, is a single, enormous panoramic illustration of the first day of the Battle of the Somme, accordioned into book form, 
And Joe, welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Now, until this work, I have to say, I knew of the Battle of the Somme mainly from hearing it mentioned by British characters in various masterpiece theater shows. Right. Clearly, it looms large, though, in in the British mind. Tell us, why is that? Well, I would say the enormous number of casualties they suffered there. On the first day alone, there were 60,000 casualties. 20,000 of those were uh, deaths. Mm. And I mean, to put this in perspective, the estimates are in the first hour, 10,000 British soldiers were killed, which is more than all the American servicemen killed in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Generally lay out for us what the British plan was, because they didn't think that they were going to suffer like this. No, they didn't. I mean, what they did is they, they prepared an enormous bombardment on the German trenches. It actually went on for seven days. It was really enormous. So the British soldiers were, a lot of them were told, you know, you will just walk into the trenches and you'll find no one alive. But enough of them survived so that when the British went over the top, uh, the Germans were able to, you know, uh, machine gun the British troops as they came along. What is striking to me about all of this is how the commanders could have been so certain they would, would have succeeded and yet let these obvious details go. How, how is that possible that they could not have thought of things like, well, maybe these guys are dug pretty deep and this relentless bombardment isn't going to do anything? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think they thought seven days would be enough, but it wasn't the sort of bombardment as you're suggesting that dug deep into the German, yeah. the dugouts. But why? <laughs> well, that's the question I asked myself as I was drawing. You know, why? I'm not sure I can put my finger on what went wrong, but to say that things went wrong. It was basically you you had flesh moving across open ground into machine gun bullets and artillery fire. It's flesh versus the machine age. That is what was wrong about the First World War. In the sense that maybe it was being planned according to the rules of a previous war where there wasn't so much machinery? That might be the case. I mean, generals always sort of plan for the last war, they say, in general in warfare. For example, the French in World War II had the Maginot Line. They expected the trench warfare would return, there'd be fortifications would be very important, and it was a war of movement by that point. I imagine you came into this knowing something of this battle. In researching, what most surprised you about it? Well, I mean, I've been reading about this battle since I was about 10 years old. It always kind of fascinated me. I think the thing that surprised me most was the, the enthusiasm of the British soldiers going into the battle. The British soldiers who signed up in 1915 didn't want the war to be over by Christmas. They wanted to get into it. Soldiers enlisted uh, with their villages, with their friends. There were even pals battalions where you could enlist with your pals. Hmm. They wanted to get in there. They thought it would be sort of a cakewalk. And so there was a great enthusiasm. But I think this is the battle where, you know, there could be no more illusions about what the war was about and what it would be like. And by the next year, you had the French army mutinying rather than going over the top again. The moment where the romance of battle is finally erased. Unfortunately, I think the the story of humanity is that the romance of battle is always there. And it has to be re-erased and re-erased over and over again by each generation. Is that what you want us to take from this piece? Just that we have to keep reminding ourselves this is not, you know, a movie? Well, I, I wanted it to be something that sort of hit me in the gut. And when I was researching the book at the Imperial War Museum, you know, what I was sort of struck by was the official photographers didn't take a lot of pictures of the dead. And the casualties, the British casualties were mostly sort of cheerful. That's, that's how they were portrayed? Yes. And I, I sort of based a lot of my drawings not on, on photographs, but on 
prose accounts by veterans who'd been there. And I thought, I, I want to try to turn these into images. The panorama is in black and white. You've done a lot of work in black and white. But this is the sort of thing that could have obviously had a lot of impact from, for instance, a lot of red. Uh, what was your thinking in keeping it to the black and white palette? Well, black and white is what I kind of know. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I'm glad I didn't have to use red because... You know, it's not pleasant to draw the bodies, I've got to say that. And I think the color would have made it that much harder to um, to depict. Emotionally for yourself? Yes, that's right. I mean, to be honest, I, d I don't like drawing this sort of stuff. Um, when I agreed to do this project, I didn't really think about it too much. And then when you get to the people going over the top, you have to draw their wounds. And you sort of decide, oh, well, this one will still be okay. And this one next to him will be badly wounded, you know, maybe has lost a limb. And in some ways, when you're drawing people, you have to sort of be in the moment. You kind of have to inhabit everything you draw. Mm. And it's something I felt with my previous work. And it's something I'm getting a little fed up with at this point. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you just feel like, okay, here I am doing this, and I've just got to do it right. You feel, I guess, a responsibility then? It's like you're you're the guy that can bring these things to life, and it's important. Well, that's true to some extent. I mean, I, was, I just did a journalism story out of Srebrenica. And part of me didn't want to do it, but part of me felt like, no, you know, you know this stuff well, you understand how to get this story. And, you know, drawing that particular story was really, again, it was just unpleasant. And I want to get back to that moment 20, 25 years ago when, I, when every morning I looked forward to going to the drawing table. Artist and journalist Joe Sacco, his new work is called The Great War, July 1st, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And Brendan Joe said he's going to continue to explore themes of war and politics, but he's hoping his next book will be more of a satire, something with some humor. Wow. Well, I'm glad for his sake. Indeed. And that is the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. You can find us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. And believe it or not, we exist in real life, too, and we're going to prove it to everyone. On November 22nd in Los Angeles, we'll be hosting our first ever live event. Special guests include Parks and Rec star Aubrey Plaza, etiquette tips from Reading Rainbow's LeVar Burton, and, of course, you'll also get to taste a custom-made cocktail and try out your most amazingly terrible icebreakers on us. So please... We can't wait. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. Anyway, the show has already sold out, but we do have two free tickets to give away, and you can win them. Go to dinnerpartydownload.org slash live to enter for those. Meanwhile, let's roll the credits. Jackson Musker is the associate producer of the Dinner Party Download. Executive producer Peter Clowney. Our interns are Brittany Martin, Davey Kim, and James Delahousie. Engineering this week by Bill Lance and Jeff Peters. And special thanks to Trent Wolby. Bon appetit. <laughs>